0: Welcome to The Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Steph Speck. When she was nine, her parents, both teachers, decided to move the family to live in Tari, in the southern highlands province of Papua New Guinea. Early on after their arrival, a tribal fight was held on the school oval. Someone had killed three pigs that had been set aside to pay a bride price, and blood revenge was the only way out. Steph's father made the whole school stand at the windows for five minutes and watch as people attacked each other with bows and arrows and machetes. The lesson was clear and seen on Steph's mind for life. Violence is never the solution. War doesn't fix things. Since then, Steph has lived and worked in more than 20 countries accumulating almost 25 years' experience as a strategy and communications advisor, supporting democratic reform in fragile and conflict-affected settings. Steph's expertise includes the design and programming of cross-government reform strategies, strategic communication advocacy initiatives, public policy development, counterterrorism communication strategies, government public affairs, and crisis communications. Steph has launched TV channels, including the Middle East's most popular, NBC Action was Deputy Director of the First Palestine Investment Forum, led a US $1 billion government's reform portfolio in Afghanistan, developed maternal health campaigns in the Vietnamese-Chinese border regions, worked to eliminate family voting in Albania, reported on disasters, earning her the Australian Humanitarian Award for her work post the Indian Ocean tsunami, and held several high-level public diplomacy and spokesperson roles, including a senior advisor to the Senior Minister of Afghanistan, the President of Somalia, and the Prime Minister of Iraq. Steph has just finished almost three years leading communication and advocacy initiatives for the UN Office of Disaster Risk Reduction in Geneva. Her biggest communication challenge in recent years has been explaining to her nine-year-old daughter how a world where President Trump can be elected and Yemen ignored can exist. Steph, thank you for joining me. It's a real pleasure to host you on the uh, Voices of War.
1: Hi, Maz. I'm very, very happy to be here.
0: And just for context for my audience, I met Steph first in uh, 2018. We uh, worked together on a project uh, in Iraq, and this is where I uh, got to know the, uh, the fury that Steph uh, possesses <laughs> and how she, uh, how she does work. Um, Steph, you have one of those absolutely amazing biographies that uh, invites more questions than it answers. So maybe we can start with that first introduction to war in Papua New Guinea. You were nine years old when you first observed mm. mass violence. Could you describe that scene for us, for us in a little more detail?
1: Sure. I, yeah, my family, um, my parents were missionaries, and uh, they literally, from one day to the next, decided to take us to live in the southern highlands of, of Papua New Guinea, in, uh, in the middle of the very mountainous region, um, in a tribal group called the Huli, Huli people. And um, the Huli people were fighters. That's what they were renowned for. Mm. short, stocky, strong, strong people. And when I went back to Papua New Guinea um, about 20 years later when I was working with AusAid, all I had to do was introduce myself as a Highland Mary and people backed <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a really the most formative experience of my life. We were there for three years and we finished school every afternoon at three and it got dark at seven. So mm. we were allowed to run wild from three till seven. We didn't wear shoes for three years. We learnt to hunt. We made banana palm rafts, you know, rafted down rivers. It was a, a childhood paradise. Mm. But there were also really, really tough things, yeah, and um, living in a group which had not been open to outside access for for very long, uh, who were by nature into conflict and and as I described in my bio, that is the first time that I've ever witnessed men fighting men uh, in a horrific in a horrific way with bows and arrows and machetes. Uh, nothing mm. clean or, mm. or, or or sober about it. And I really admire my father, although I had no idea why he was doing it at the time. It was truly terrifying because, of course, we didn't know whether they would move from the Oval into the school. Mm. Mm. So there was that hanging over that. But I remember my father in his very grave, serious manner saying, I want everyone to watch this. And, and so we did. And the, the memory that I have of that is irrevocably seared in my, my heart, my my mind and my soul. And I remember there was only one takeaway that was possible from that, and that is this is never, ever going to solve anything because it just starts a cycle of the mm. next fight and of the next series or story of revenge. And I think at that stage I thought this has really spoken to me um, in all my nine-year-old wisdom. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe there's something here for you know for later on. And, and I think that's really what set me up on a path of being interested in conflict. Interested in places that weren't working so well, and seeing um, what I could through my own skill set and passion and energy do about that.
0: That's amazing. I, I I love the fact that you can actually reflect on the thoughts and emotions of a nine-year-old. And I and I frequently speak about this on the podcast. I, I was I was ten when the war in Bosnia broke out, and I had I, I still carry and remember that feeling of, yeah. in one way, excitement. Right, because I was ten and I didn't really know what was happening Uh, to me it was kind of exciting soldiers army and I loved it all but in another way I I've felt a real loss of control uh, and a sense of understanding the world around me which I think planted the seed also for my own path and my own journey Mm -hmm. I wonder what what was your dad's intention with I guess forcing the whole school Mm -hmm. to watch I mean was he did he contextualise this as a lesson uh, that he wanted you and I presumably mm-hmm. with his uh, local children or, or, or presumably all Papua New Guinean children and, you know?
1: Some Papua New Guinean children but mostly an international international school okay. yeah. cohort. Uh, my father is very deliberate about everything mm. that he does. <laughs> a very, very thoughtful man and he doesn't do anything lightly. So it would not have <laughs> been a, you know, oh, it was certainly not in any way meant to be, a traumatising experience for us, probably, Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) Um, or a kind of a, oh, quick look at this, this is interesting. I'm sure my father thought quite quickly but strongly about that moment. And my father is a great lover of peace. You know, he was in his, I guess, early 20s when the Vietnam War Mm. um, and, and people were being conscripted in Australia and he and two of his brothers were, were conscripted. All of them, fortunately, did not have to go to war because they all had terrible knee injuries from playing too much footy. Right. Um, okay, but, yeah. but I know that that is what forms part of my father's psyche. So I think it was a very deliberate move on his, on his part to show us what happened when people sought to try and fix things through through fighting. And mm. I have no doubt that he deliberately chose that, hoping that we would never, ever forget that that mm. lesson and i'm I'm really grateful, I think that many parents now would be horrified <laughs> to hear that someone did mm. that because of mm. course you know there's associated trauma with with looking at things like that, but I can only be grateful, and mm. I think uh, I would be so bold to say that if I had that opportunity with my own nine year old daughter now I would do the same thing yeah, so that she mm. would hopefully learn the same lessons
0: yeah, and I guess the idea of trauma i mean trauma if things are left to fester I guess you know that's when yes. it really develops into a traumatic experience but if it's contextualized mm-hmm. and explained and and discussed discussed yes. Yeah. Exactly. and I
1: remember we discussed it as a, as a mm. classroom of nine and ten year olds what did we seen how did we feel what did we think would happen next and mm. I think even at that very young age that very formative stage we knew what would happen next if mm. someone would come back to get the guy who killed that guy yeah
2: mm.
1: Mm. we knew that as I said earlier, that there's a cycle of violence that's very, very difficult to break out, and I've seen that cycle of violence now in Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan, Albania, Algeria, Syria, in yeah. many places that I've lived and worked since.
0: That's a it, it's incredible, and I and I couldn't agree more. I think it's the, the tit for tat, and and I mean we also know in places like Afghanistan, it is it is part of the the honor code. I mean it's a, you know say the Pashtunwali. Right. I mean we know that uh, you know blood is paid, you know, an indiscretion mm-hmm. is paid in blood. Uh, and that's yes. not, you know, you know, that's perhaps something that we quote-unquote Westerners uh, don't necessarily understand, but that's infused in just about every, the roots of just about every society that, you know, revenge in one way yeah. or another, you know, whether through sanctions, uh, you know, yeah. or through dropping bombs uh, or through, you know, yes. family, family violence. I mean, that's still, uh, yeah. you know, if, if we just think to our own political leaders or... Funnily enough, to you know, we're speaking uh, uh, on the eve of uh, you know September 11. uh, You know that war started as a you know almost not almost it was revenge. Uh,
1: It was purely revenge and revenge in a very funny place. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: It was revenge by proxy.
0: By proxy, that's right. Yeah, (laughs) and then we went somewhere else as well. Yeah, while we're at it. (laughs) Um, So okay, so so that and that really that experience I can. Certainly appreciate how they would have set the path for you, uh, but of course you were you were only nine at that point. Uh, so how did you then uh, stumble into uh, what has been uh, you know nearly twenty five years of, of mm. you know working in some of the craziest parts, <laughs> the dodgiest people. places in the planet? Yeah, 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 yeah. How did you you know get into that?
1: Yeah, I, look, I didn't set out to do it. I, I actually wanted to be the world's best opera singer. So um, ah. I, I, yeah, I, I love music. Music is my, is my passion and I trained to, uh, to sing. Um, okay. And, yeah, uh, and um, for various reasons, and, and that's what I did uh, early on in my career, I sang semi-professionally. Oh, wow. But I yeah. always had a, um, a notion that there was more to being applauded, um, as satisfying as that is. And uh, very early on, I I had um, started working in communications. Again, no background there. I studied literature and philosophy. I knew how to think and write. That was it. Mm. But I didn't know anything about comms or marketing or, or you know, how you change people's mind. But I knew that it was an area that I was interested in. And so all of my learning, the entirety of it, has has been through doing,
2: Mm. through
1: trying, through experimenting, through learning from people on the job from making mistakes and then trying to do it better the next time.
0: The school of life. Um, yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. as Aussies, that's often that's often how we how we go. Yeah. Um so I I once saw an advertisement for um someone to run a program talking about international aid in Australia. And it turned out it was Aussie. They didn't put their name on the ad. And uh, I I went into a job interview and <laughs> as I've done many times since then I listened to the people describe the job and I thought, that won't work. And I said, I don't think that will work. I, this is how I would do it. And the poor, shocked person on the other end of the, the coffee table said, oh, okay, well, maybe we could give that a shot. And that started my career with with AusAid. And AusAid, I guess, the seminal moment of that, um, there were many, but it was really to talk with the Australian public about the fact that their dollars were doing something else outside the domestic borders. They were making improvements in people's lives in the region, which led back to improved you know, security outcomes for mm. Australia, some of those, those long-winded logical logical yeah. arguments. And I, and I loved it. Um, and then in 2004, uh, on, on Boxing Day, uh, I was with family in Sydney and I think we were all glued to the television as, as everyone in Australia was watching the, the terrible tragedy of the tsunami overtake so many countries um, in, the, in the Indian Ocean. And I rang Canberra and said... You know what? I think you're going to need someone on the ground, um, I to tell the story and to show Australians that their their aid dollar is is making a big difference and it's not being wasted; it's being used well. Can I go? <laughs> and I literally got on a plane two days later. Qantas baggage handlers very conveniently lost my tent, um, which I you know had taken so that I had somewhere to sleep. And I went from Sri Lanka to the Maldives to Banda Aceh and did the circuit a few times over the next three or four months, basically telling the story um, of what happened when Australian dollars, you know, uh, go into places like Sri Lanka and Maldives after, after a natural hazard has hit and, and destroyed mm-hmm. everything that, that, that people know and realise. And that gave me this, and I, <laughs> I just, I loved it. I, I knew I could live on anything, anywhere uh, and and tell a story, and that really started my my journey of being the person who got sent when things went when things went wrong. Um,
0: yeah, that's, and that's
1: that's what that's what started that's what opened the doors actually.
0: And that would have been an incredible experience. I mean, and wow, talk about um, you know a courageous move as well. I mean, to just phone up and say, hey, uh, should I go? Because I suspect you 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 were not actually part of the logistical move no your job was you created your job basically to hey let me tell the Australian people what we're actually look at all the good we're actually doing um, over there yeah
1: that's right that's right
0: it's a powerful I think it's a really powerful tool that we don't necessarily uh, give much credit to uh, especially when you know people don't see what happens with development Mm -hmm. uh, money or or aid money or aid funds Uh, and it's probably something that we uh, I hate to say it, it's it's I, I don't think that's something we necessarily do well uh but also because there are perhaps mm-hmm. even so many questions about you know how that money is spent uh, and we don't nec- yep. we don't necessarily rationalize that well and we can't really account for it all that well uh and, and perhaps that's a that, that's a, that's a separate topic um, but communication is well that is your gig
1: mhm yeah
0: sure is but communication is one of those things that we talk about as though we understand what it is because it is so intuitive. Uh, it mm-hmm. is almost a bit like culture, you know. It's this kind of big, grand topic uh, that's a little bit slippery. We 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 kind of, you know, we assume we know what it is, uh, but right. it, but it but it is an umbrella term. How do yeah. you define communication? And and I particularly like the fact that you know you're a practitioner of communication. You know, it, you're not about to give me an academic definition of communication but a practitioner's view what is communication
1: yeah, yeah and and I'll start by you know breaking the cardinal rule of comms and I, I won't answer the question immediately <laughs> but because you know the first thing that comes to mind to me well, is before, always bad comms you know we all yeah. know what bad comms look like it looks like you know that in, unintelligible set of instructions mm. you get when you've got to build something or when you're sitting on a plane and you don't know why it hasn't taken off and the captain is silent or Mm, mm, it's mm. that family conflict, you know, which just results in entrenched positions. We all know what bad comms looks like and, more importantly, what it makes us feel and, Mm. therefore, how it makes us act or or not act. So I think really simply at its heart is communication is about building a connection.
2: Mm.
1: Now, strategic communication, which is what I like to think I do, Mm. is building a connection that results in a change. Mm. So it's moving beyond that very basic part of comms, which is about giving information, to to thinking what has to happen in a chain of events to get something to change, Mm. either in people's minds or their hearts or the way they live their lives or at the level in in some of the jobs that I've worked in, at a macro level, at a government level. How Mm. do you get a government to change its mind so that citizens... Uh, understand what a government's trying to do, and therefore they they embrace reform uh, mm. rather than fight against reform. So strategic mm. comms is comms that builds a connection because it has change as the end goal, and it's crap communications which I see most of the time because it never gets to that. It's okay. There's a brochure. There's a website. There's a tweet, and it's kind of like this you know this one way um, megaphone approach to, to comms rather than. Uh, um, this two-way discussion that is at the heart of all good comms.
0: Yeah, and and I guess that leads me to the I guess uh, the next point, particularly when you're talking about the kind of macro level strategic communication, mm. government level communication which is designed a to represent the people presumably but also connect to the people. Yeah. Yeah. How do you then, and that's something, this is something that I've wrestled with, um, you know, over, over many years to try and understand, because it, to me, it's almost, it's there is marketing in it, there's salesmanship mm-hmm. in it, there is making mm-hmm. people believe things, you know, to to instill a vision, inspire, um, but how do you link their voices to people on the ground, particularly in these conflict uh, affected areas where there are thousands of narratives, there are Different tribal dynamics. There are different geopolitical dynamics. It seems to me like a like a exceptionally complex mm-hmm. idea to try and move a country forward by giving them some. Do, do you see what I mean? Like, how do you link yes. the, the the underground yeah. voice to that strategic picture?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's. I mean, communications has always been a tool of reform and revolution. Mm. You don't get either without cons. Mm. But. Um, and I believe it was it was Plato who said that those who tell the stories rule society. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think that comms used to be the preserve of the rich and powerful. I mean, you think about it. Even two, three hundred years ago, you and I probably would not have known what our king or our prime minister looked like.
2: Mm,
1: yeah, we mm. wouldn't have been privileged enough right. to have to have seen the little oil paintings or to have been able to read or understand what we were seeing. Mm. So in the last 20 years, what this extraordinary revolution in terms of social media has brought us that now just with a phone, I can have a media empire. Mm.
2: Mm. So
1: communications has fundamentally changed from being something that you owned and controlled through influence and power Mm. to something that can be used by anybody, anytime, anywhere, and therefore governments can only seek to influence or leverage Mm. We've moved from controlling to persuading, and that's a totally different level of skill set. And I see that very much in some of the countries I've worked in. Firstly, there's a great deal of risk Mm. um, associated with with good comms initially. So many of my first conversations with presidents or prime ministers or, or ministers are, oh, Steph, we don't want to talk about that what if it goes wrong or what if people don't believe us what if we can't live up to that promise
0: can you can you give a, a conscious of you know private private conversations but is there mm-hmm. any examples that you can that you can give to to just to carry through to make your point because i think i've yeah, sure. seen some amazing things so it'd be good to hear the
1: very the very first gig i had in afghanistan was uh, working on a project that was about giving power back to the private sector <laughs> so rather than you have in any you know former communist regime where the where the state was the employer it's about saying the private sector has to lift its its part of the share too. So you can imagine the government was really hesitant about ceding power and the private sector was hesitant about what it meant when it took power. So I remember I had I had a huge fight both with the people in the fund that we'd set up and the people in the ministries that should benefit the fund about putting up a website to say what we what it was that we wanted to do, and I remember very clearly sitting in a in a in a meeting with the head of the fund saying, "Oh, we don't want to put our head, you know, over the parapet." That's what he used. We don't. We might get shot at, and I remember very clearly saying, "Yeah, sure, probably we will, but at least we'll see it coming." So for for me, it was the the very first thing was about transparency, visibility. Hmm. Because trust is what's critical, and when I go into these environments, what I see often, and and normally I go into these environments, literally I get a phone call from an unlisted number, Steph. We've heard you do this kind of stuff. Could you come um, and you know give us a six months and and set up a com structure for us as a new prime minister, as a new president, as a new as a new minister? And uh, normally I say I say yes, and normally I have a very tough discussion to say, look you've got to this position because you sold a dream. And probably the dream is not actually realisable. Yeah. So you've said, "Here's here's, you've set people's expectations on an upward trajectory. Mm. The reality is going to be here or worse, you know, Mm. sloping down. Um, For those of you who can't see, I'm kind of, I hope I'm doing like a 45
0: degree angle. (laughs) I'm terrible (laughs) at maths.
1: You can correct me, Maz.
0: (laughs) That's that's, that's spot on.
1: (laughs) And in between those two angles... If you can't bring expectations and reality together, you only have, you have a deficit of trust. Mm. And that's what breaks empires. Mm. Mm. Because there will always be someone who can come in and, and fill that void. So often the first conversation I have is about personal trust between me and who's in charge. I have to be able to say what I think is the right way. Maybe I don't get to do it, but I need to be able to say it. Mm. Mm. And second, we have to have a commitment to above anybody, anything else, being realistic um, with what we can deliver. You can tell people to go and drink from a well and say that water is healthy, but unless the well is there, people can't drink. So mm. comms has to go hand in hand with the actual practical reforms. And when they are separated, which I see in many places that the comms sells the dream and the practical reform never happens. Again, you get back into that cycle of mistrust, yeah. distrust, um, and nothing is possible. I Can I expand with another example, maybe from, maybe from Iraq? Yeah, please. Yeah. So when I worked in Iraq for the second time, and this is where you and I met, it was a really complex situation where Daesh controlled 60% of the of the country. And of course, you know, Daesh had a massive cons budget. Mm. No mm. one knows exactly how much it was, but we know it was tens of millions. And effective,
0: you know, and very effective. And effective, right? because, yeah. Yeah. because
1: they sold a vision and they made it come true. Horrific, terrible, as anti-human rights as it was, they made it come true. So... Mm. People thought, well, there's someone in charge who says what he means and then goes and makes it happen. And if you look at the the way that you know post-conflict or conflict or fragile states work, it's often been a series of promises that haven't been yeah. able to get, yeah. get kept. So when someone comes in who who says something as as far out as it is and keeps that promise, it actually builds trust.
0: Better than devil I so know, it, right?
1: That's exactly like right. It's really I, what yeah, it is, right. I know. I steal something, in my hand. Gets yeah, chopped off. Yeah. Well, my state and my neighbor probably more to put it how it actually works. My neighbor steals yeah. something from me. He gets his hand chopped yeah. off. I quite like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah that's right. <laughs> so,
1: um, so when when we came into that situation, Daesh had a clear vision. They had the power and the means and the money to fund achieving that, that vision and telling people about it. And we were given the task of coming into Iraq and actually building, helping the government tell its vision in a way that could be believed. And when we got in there, the government wanted to set up its own digital service yeah social media complete digital service and we had to say actually we can't do that right now firstly you've got no one to talk to secondly you've got no stories to tell them and if you if you start peddling false truths in that environment you will only undermine yourselves even even more so we had to say press pause for a moment Hmm. and then we had to go through a very rigorous period of research and understanding what is it that was, you know, that people wanted to respond to. What did they want to hear from the government? What would fix their needs? And from that, driving down into five key things, energy, you know, energy yeah. was above anything else. People wanted to know that their lights would come on and the AC would work, you know, during 55-degree days. And we had to build out an audience. We knew that we, the only stories we could tell, going back to that, you know, those who tell stories rule rule society. The only stories we could tell were not of government successes, but were of personal successes that everyday Iraqis had Mm. brought to fruition in their own lives. We told stories of people, the baker on the corner, who had looked after, you know, poor people in his neighbourhood by baking bread for free and then next year had been able to install a new oven and had increased efficiency. Mm. The woman who, under the rule of Daesh, had not been able to leave her home, chose not to leave her home, actually, because she refused to be completely covered, who had learned five languages over Skype. Those stories of everyday triumphs that said that, you know, Iraq, we're in this together and we've got this together. Mm. And for me, that was an extraordinary period in Iraq's history to, to live through, to witness, to serve, seeing that you could tell stories of people doing ordinary things that made a difference for them, their families and their communities, and then mm. broaden that out to say, well, you know, the government wants to do more of that and actually then worked very hard with sometimes very reluctant ministers who wanted to tell the big stories. They said, no, 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 (laughs) no. Yeah,
0: yeah, not yet. We can't
1: tell this story, you know, of of the new power field in rate. It doesn't exist. Mm,
0: mm, We mm. can
1: tell a story of subsidising diesel fuel for generators, Mm. yeah, so that people can afford it. So scale, truth and transparency became the way that we did that comms. And I think, you know, what delights me now is to see very dear colleagues who we worked with. Mm not only have had success in in that environment but have gone on to build their own businesses because mm. of you know what we learned together uh, yeah. and be successful in a commercial marketplace and yeah. that's that's a great story of development development done right because we took the time to pause listen learn and guide um, to development leading to increased skills and capacity that allow people to go up and set up their own fantastic businesses doing incredible comms and advertising
0: yeah. And it's and it all it's all from telling stories of the people on the ground, those who are ultimately paying the price for all yes. of it, uh, yes. and 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 making them realise that they are being heard and that their stories matter. Uh, but I think it also builds yes. a natural connection to the everyday person when you hear an everyday and see an everyday person, uh, you connect with that yeah. rather than seeing the yeah. pompous uh, train of glory, uh, mm-hmm. you know that is. Usually, political leadership, particularly you know, in in, in uh, countries like Iraq, uh, you know, and and you know, I'll also put and my if you're
1: the places, closer yeah, exactly. to
0: home. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. yeah, 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 that's right. So, so you know, it's it's certainly not uh, not a, not an isolated incident, uh, but you know, yeah. to actually see the people, and I think it was the campaign was what for for a new Iraq, if I if I recall, mm-hmm. uh, at least one of them. Um, I, I do remember how impactful those stories were and how well made it was. It wasn't a wasn't a half-assed effort. Uh, the yes. production, the production piece was a was a really, yeah, strong production. Which yeah, and, you know, and I think again that's in, that's an important aspect, right? I mean, if you're going exactly. you go to do this, you've got to do it right. Yeah. It's, you yes, know, the,
1: yeah. You, you must never compromise. You must never ever compromise. And I've never bought into that. Oh, we have we can only do it this way because it's fifty-five mm. degrees because the power went out because uh, maybe people have ha- haven't had the benefit of you know being taught. It, it, that they're just excuses, um, yes, the power can go out yes, it can be 55. yes, there can be an earthquake but but who cares actually mm, <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Um, yeah. there's no there should be no excuses made for for lack of quality. I'm a big big believer that whatever you can do in places where you think it's easy to do it, you can also do in places mm. where maybe there are some other interesting things that get in the way. so a commitment to quality um, yeah. is is also a, a trademark um,
0: absolutely. My, I guess my question would be, and, and this is my the cynic in me, you mm. know, what is the difference between you know arguably manipulation on behalf of a government or you know <laughs> what we would call you know in military intelligence speak psychological operations mm. where you 're trying to shape and influence uh, a population towards uh, you know, a military end state uh, in this case, it would be to a government 's end state, uh, and we also know you know certainly in many parts of the world uh, you know autocratic regimes. Certainly, live by the credo of manipulating the population and, you know, exploiting ultimately through that manipulation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How would you answer a skeptic uh, about Iraq in particular, uh, where you know we're still seeing? And I've just recently, uh, in fact, I just recently interviewed our good old friend Gasan, uh, who you know, yes. we know we know well. I heard that. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and he he made the point uh, quite quite clearly. I mean. Iraq now is more divided than ever ever was. Oh, uh, he's okay. in 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 a way also predicting uh, the redrawing of maps around Iraq, which which again just goes to that point that the the skeptic could very easily say, okay, how can I know that that's not just government manipulation? And you know, mm-hmm. if the government was so fantastic in doing all these great things, then why is mm-hmm. the country falling apart basically?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an, it's an excellent question. There's a couple of ways of answering that. One is around attribution. I think attribution is the key difference between the kind of spook comms, the under-the-table comms, um, and the, the full-on in-your-face government in the sun communications, mm. as, as I would call it. So there should, I think attribution is absolutely critical. You, as a person, as a citizen, I, I need to know who said it, when they said it, where they said it. And that that, um, that line needs to be very, very clear. Um, And I think particularly in many, many cases which have been ruled by dictators, dreadful people who have used state-owned media as their own personal PR machine. Mm. You've got to make a cut. And that is why in places like Iraq, it's much better to be slower to talk about what is possible than to oversell at the beginning. And that's a very difficult thing to tell to a government. If a Mm. president's just been elected or a prime minister has just got in to say pause. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. While we get things, get things right, while we build the wells that we're going to go and help people to drink from later mm, on. Mm.
2: Um,
1: so I think it's, it's firstly the attribution. secondly, the ability to say, pause, slow down. what's actually measurable, visible, apparent. Um, and in Iraq, we had to wait essentially 10, 11 months till we could get to mm, that mm, till mm. we could get to that stage. And then it was again, the small stories, as I said, about subsidized fuel rather than a power plant. In Somalia, it was around things. We couldn't talk about federalism or a constitution or one one person, one one vote at the beginning of my work in Somalia. We had to talk about community-level healing, community-level justice, Mm. community-level service provision um, as as the building block. We couldn't sell a national dream. There was no nation. Yeah. The pressure that you often get that distorts that and actually gets in the way is the pressure, in my again, in my experience, lived experience in many places, is the international aid architecture that comes in all guns blazing, all funds blazing, mm. and wants very quick, rapid change to yeah. demonstrate their own effectiveness and the power of their brand. But also, I mean, they're well-motivated, <laughs> yeah. if not well-executed. And yeah.
0: it, I love that, the power of their own brand. I, I, I'll, I'll come yeah. back to that. I, I think that's a, such an mm. amazing point, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt. I just, am uh, just kind of putting a, a bookmark on that.
1: So many times, again, in my experience, I've sat in meetings with heads of state and ambassadors or heads of multilateral organisations who've come in and promised promised the world. I remember a classic example in, um, in Afghanistan, uh, the World Bank, We were going through um, a law and justice reform um, program. And for the first time, actually, um, the government, the Afghan government had put together a team of ministries, advisors, people like me who are are not sitting in a donor compound somewhere but who are living and walking the streets, embedded in ministries, who, who said to donors, wait, you have to give us... 18 months to develop our own strategies. We know what you want to do, but we're going to tell you what we want to do. Mm,
2: mm, mm, <laughs> that yeah.
1: issue of sovereignty is always at stake, and I've I, I staked my career on defending sovereignty of different of different places and, and, and nations. Um, and in Afghanistan, the World Bank had a fantastic proposal for the law and justice sector. One of the big issues was getting people to turn up for their court appearances. So I think something like 70% of court cases were never heard because people didn't come. And so the World Bank wanted to build, I think uh, um, I may have this amount incorrect, but I just mm. want to prove, you know, I want to make yeah, the point, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of uh, tens of millions, if not at least more than 100 million to put in a digital court reminder system. Mm.
2: Um,
1: and they they had the money, they had the program, and I remember speaking with the Minister of Justice and he said, Steph, we, we actually, we want paper. So what do you mean paper? He said, you know that paper that has the black, ink thing underneath it. So when you write on the first bit, it goes through to the second yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we reckon that'll cost us about 20,000. We need like, we need 10,000 of those booklets and we need them given to the courtrooms. Yeah, because firstly, the courtrooms don't have power. And if they do have power, then they're a target for the Taliban to come and cut off the power. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to increase the risk of, you know, so trying to set up a, um, a verifiable justice system. Can you give us paper? Yeah, and this is the discussion I've had Many, many times of of being sitting in a government office, understanding the government perspective, and having to go and then fight that fight with donors who have something brilliant, probably better, but just not suitable. Hmm. Um, and and that happens not just with practical things like law and justice reform, but on the comms side as well. So often there's comms budget around doing beautiful films or booklets or publications or having an event, but again, if they don't serve to shore up the country or to give confidence increase confidence of citizens in their own government they are a waste of a waste of time and yeah. i think in my experience many of these initiatives i think have proven to be a waste of time because they've not sat pressed pause learned and listened
0: and understood what, where they're actually operating i mean and that speaks to so many different points but i really like that i just want to pick up on that power of their own brand because i think that's a mm-hmm that's a fundamental weakness in the way we interact on the global stage. We mm-hmm. profess values, but we work for interests, yes. right? <laughs> and that to me is a, is a continuous clash in my mind and one that I just, it, it, it strikes me as philosophically, ethically, uh, one that we just don't unpack sufficiently, right? So, and when mm-hmm. you say the power of their own brand, that to mm-hmm. me says I've got my own interests at heart here. This is what I this is what my brand needs to stand up for. This is what I'm trying to s- sell, not necessarily as a product, but I'm selling my brand, yes. my power, my soft power, my hard power, whatever it is. That's my yes. brand. So therefore it mm-hmm. is backed by my own interests. Yes. Whilst I'm espousing domestically and internationally values to uphold, we're going to go to Afghanistan and give women the vote, we're going to liberate, mm-hmm. we're going to give equality, we're going to, et cetera, democratise, etc. etc. et, cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. But those are continuously in clash because if you already know what story you're going to, quote, unquote, sell, then,
1: mm-hmm. of course,
0: you're not going to ask the Afghan women, mm-hmm. what does equality look like to you? I'm going yeah. to come in with my brand of equality, uh i know the answer i know the solution here it is and that's why we you know uh, and i really really like that point you know world bank i mean if the world bank <laughs> yeah. you know if the world bank can't allocate people to analyze sufficiently the ecosystem quote unquote that it's
2: mm-hmm.
0: operating in like afghanistan to not realize that hey uh computer systems
2: hmm,
0: you know there might be a bridge too far yes <laughs> you know that yes. like, to me at this just- stage yeah, yeah, this yeah. Day, exactly, exactly. And, you know, 30, 40, 50, I don't know, ever down a track sure. but let's start that process. And also, you know, there are so many questions that yeah. go with that. You know, do, do you have yeah. enough trained people in it? Do you have enough life through, you know, yeah. support for, for all the equipment and all the tons yeah. of questions that come with it? But perhaps most importantly, yeah. have we actually asked the people, what, what do they think?
1: Yeah, have we have we sat on the ground long enough? And I think – and. Don't get me wrong, I think there are many people who do and have, including in the World Bank, mm. and including in many branches of the UN, people who've given their, their lives to 100%. countries
2: yeah.
1: um, in many, in many ways, and the lives of their families too. Mm, yeah. I, I think there's a there's a classic story that I'd like to tell to illustrate this. When I when I first arrived in, in Somalia um, to work with the president there as, as his strategic advisor for, for communications. Um, the president had never been a president, had never been in politics. Uh, he was an educator, a, a, mm. a well-renowned, well-loved educator um, and who, who came to power to his own surprise uh, and had his own very clear domestic agenda for the, for the country, which was very, very quickly overshadowed by what, by what donors wanted to do. Then my literally, I think it may have been my second day in Mogadishu. I was staying in the in Villa, Somalia, the presidential compound. Um, it's not walled up behind the the UN's and and uh, Africom's thousands mm. of soldiers on the UN compound, but mm. out in the city. And I was asked to go and and have lunch with the president. And as I walked through the through the compound, you know, you get into sort of progressive layers mm. of, of mm. tightening security. And right from the for the little room that I was staying in, there had been an old woman um, in front of me and she had a chicken under each arm and she was walking ahead of me. And as we got further and deeper and deeper into the compound, she kept on walking. And as we got to the, the fence around the president's house where all of his real internal security guys mm. were, she went through that gate too. And I thought, oh my goodness, have I just been rude to the president's mom? Like, you know, yes. I, I, have I just... You know, this, this little old lady with two chickens has just walked through all the layers of security. She must be someone. Be someone, yeah. And, yeah, and as and I've just, you know, trailed her rather than catching up to say hello and greet her properly. And I, I had to sit outside and wait because the the woman was ushered into the presence house. I thought, oh, my goodness, I really have been rude. And so his his <laughs> guard said to me, you just need to wait, Stephanie, just sit outside for a while. And I waited for a while and then I went in to the to the president's house and we had lunch. And as I came back out again, I said to the, the guards on the door, oh, oh, who was the the old woman with the chickens? Um, I'm very sorry if I was, you know, if I wasn't polite and to They said, Oh, we don't know, that's just some, some woman from the city. And I said, Well, what was she doing here? And he said, Well, she used to have five chickens, and her neighbor stole three of them. And She's only got two left and she came here to ask the president if he would get the other three back. for her. And that was my welcome to Somalia moment. And I looked at the guard and the guard said, yes, of course he will do this. And I thought, what on earth do we have to offer? This is democracy at work. Here is an old woman, anybody, who accessed the president, directly voiced her wish and he made it happen for her. What on earth did mm. we have to offer in that very one-on-one level of, of democracy. I know who's in charge, I know I can talk to him and I know he's going to help me. <laughs> mm,
2: yeah. How
1: many other layers did we then succeed, you know, in the next 10 to 11 years of overlaying that very basic principle of access to justice from the person who's in charge? With all of our programs and our multi-million dollars and the compounds and the walls that we erected to distance the women who should be able to talk to the person who's in charge, and that for me was the model of at every point am i building barriers am i blowing them up
0: <laughs> mm, yeah yeah
1: <laughs> or maintaining that free that free pathway
0: am i falling for the technocrat trap right uh, the you know yes. the idea that i have a a well thought out technical solution to this problem it's about design uh, and yes. you know we we've learnt it in our universities uh, etc
1: yes yeah, or at worst, we we did it in Afghanistan, and now we're just going yes. to do yeah. Control all Replace and yeah. substitute Somalia, Syria, Yemen in in its in its place. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I, I find it I find it distressing the the um, the kind of bureaucratic mythology that that that. Rises in these places that it's very difficult to get things done. Mm. Um, I think we make it difficult to get things done. Uh, you know, the first thing the UN often does is to build a compound. Mm.
2: Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yourself, there's
1: immediately, yeah. it, immediately, then a, a castle mentality that sets that sets in. And when mm-hmm. you have people who, you know, in Somali who, Somalia, who had to seek special access to go to a, mm. you know, a place where they used to be able to run on the beach. Mm. Then yeah. something is something is going to undermine something sooner or later,
0: and I think it also it instills a mental image of the place you're in. It alienates mm-hmm. you, distances you as the person on the ground. And, and I couldn't agree more with you. The, the the hundreds of people that I've met in in various industries, whether military or development. Well intentioned, absolutely, you know, soul of the earth are people who are dedicating their lives, careers to make someone else's life better. And I certainly wouldn't mm-hmm. cast a shadow on them at all. But oftentimes, because of the infrastructure that we exist within, we become part of the problem as opposed to solution. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying all of us, but, you know, the general yes. image. And I just, I just think back to my own experiences. Uh, you know, having deployed as a as a as a military person, staying on bases, uh, but then going to Iraq as a civilian, and then for the first mm-hmm. time going <laughs> into Baghdad city for a coffee. Uh, yeah, you know, well, she yeah, or shisha. Like, yeah, or shisha. Like, what? What? Hold on, hold on. Can I? Can I really do this? Hold on. How will I? Won't when I? When yes. I? When I when somebody take me hostage? <laughs> yeah. But that's because of this yeah. this 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 implanted almost fear. Of the place that I'm going to, because of the narrative and the understanding that I have of, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes very limited understanding of the conflict that I'm mm-hmm. in, but because of these symbols and the images of armoured yes. vehicles, of gates, yes. of. Three, four searches. I mean, just you know, just thinking back how to get up to the iz. I mean, my god. I mean, it, you know, you have to plan your meetings. You know, you have to yeah. leave an hour an hour beforehand just to account yeah. for all the searches. Um, um, that's right. Which, arguably necessary, right? But you know, I also don't know if it's a you know, as we would say, it's a self licking ice cream, right? You're perpetuating yeah. the problem because you're creating that's right. so many barriers as well. That's
1: uh, right. And therefore, I think with cons, that's that first yeah. question you have to ask is what I'm doing. I'm Picking, unpacking, blowing up those barriers, mm. or adding adding more layers. I think that's mm. the guiding question in 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 countries where there yeah. are physical, not just virtual, barriers
2: yeah.
1: in front of people. Another, you know, and I think to the narrative, re, reworking the narrative is is critical too. I mean, Somalia was, you know, that's Black Hawk Down.
2: Mm. Mm. Everyone
1: feels like they know Somalia a bit because of, you know, they've seen the the terrible things that have happened there. But Somalia also has the longest coastline in Africa, the fastest-growing youth population. It has rivers, agricultural, entrepreneurial people. Why shouldn't it be the next biggest thing, yeah? It's this narrative that we tell that we reinforce by barriers, by structures, by institutions, by not listening, by denying sovereignty. Mm. that often creates more problems. I remember taking um, the president once to meet the head of Transparency International because Somalia always was right down the bottom of any Transparency International list for corruption. Yeah? Mm. I remember in that meeting saying, look, you know, the Somali government at that time had, a, and again, I won't get the figures exactly right, but they'll serve, mm. serve a purpose, yeah, yeah. had a recurring annual domestic budget of around $14 million. That was it. Yeah, mm. Mm. And on the other side of the, the, the fence for the international community, they had a recurring annual domestic budget of around a billion dollars.
2: Mm. Now,
1: where was corruption most likely to take place? On the side of the fence that had $14 million or on the side of the fence that had mm. access to a billion mm. and the scale of it. Mm. And I remember we asked the head of Transparency International's question, said fundamentally some of these indexes that only serve to reinforce narrative, to cut off foreign direct investment, to make it more difficult to do business, have to be redressed in the light of reality, of
2: mm.
1: actually who's got what and where does it go and who has access to it. And I think that's also been part of my comms career. How do you reset the narrative? How do you really tell the stories of what's actually happening without mm-hmm. the filtered, branded background?
0: Yeah, and the simplicity of it. And I think that's the, that's the mm-hmm. other trap. I mean, because and, and in many ways I can also understand it, right? Domestic audiences, you know, they want simple. We don't have the time mm-hmm. to, you know, analyse uh, and understand the complexity of what the Taliban is, right? Taliban, yes. the guys that are shooting at us, they're the bad guys. They're all Taliban, right? But it also does a disservice when we talk about again, because we're talking, and and, and this is where I want to come back to the idea, and I, and I really want to uh, get your thoughts on this idea of uh, interest versus values. How do you how do you tackle that challenge? Because I'm mm-hmm. sure, as strategic communications, that is a big, you know. Mm-hmm. Because you are still representing a brand, whether it's the government, you know, or, or, or the president or whoever that brand yes. is, you know, how do yes. you unpack or how do you challenge, how do you push back when yeah. interests override values, which I'm sure, you know, happens all the time.
1: Yes. It goes back to where, who tells the stories, where do those stories originate and who tells the stories. Mm. I, I hate this expression, you know, we're working to give women a voice or we're working to give X, Y, Z group a voice. Everyone has a voice.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> what we should be doing is giving access for people to hear that voice through different platforms. And this is what I love as much as I hate social media. What I love about it is that it has anybody can tell a story anytime. I don't need traditional media. Mm. I don't need to spend a big budget on on things I don't need to fly a film crew in. So what I'm really impressed about, initiatives that I see which are telling people's own stories through their own voices, Mm. and there are many of those where you provide technology, a platform, and then let people go for it. They're the stories that that we need to hear more of. They're the stories at the moment with Afghanistan. We're hearing a Kabul story. We are not hearing the story from the rest of the country. Mm. Those stories will serve to help us either fuel us to greater efforts or to recalibrate what we need to do. But for me, it's about who tells the stories and, and where do they get to tell them. And mm. my job as a communicator used to be telling those stories on behalf of other people, a mm. very colonial, patronising, self-serving way. And mm. I, I find that still often how donors work. But I think we're getting closer to saying we don't need to tell anyone's stories. Everyone can tell their own. We just need to provide a way for that story to be heard and listened to.
0: So how do you then, and uh, I've just go back to the point you said about it's now about persuasion, you know, because we mm-hmm. everybody has yeah. basically a megaphone in their pocket. Yeah. How do you? What role do you see social media companies have from this uh, perspective, right? Because we know indisputably that social media companies, uh, uh, in some cases, have been quite the the, yeah. the tools that they've created have become tools of genocide in some instances. So
1: they're not altruistic, are they?
0: Exactly, right. They're they're
1: to make their owners money.
0: (laughs) The business model of itself is, you know, the attention economy where, you know, I need eyeballs and scandal gets eyeballs on that platform. And therefore, this is why we have the algorithms that create uh, you know stove mm-hmm. piping and the 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 you know and i love the was it the Zainab Zainab zaynab uh, i think she did the research on um on uh, on youtube right the, the you know mm-hmm. if you start watching you know, just you know googling a moderate islam to find out about the five pillars of islam you know by the i don't know I'm, I'm you know making up figures here but you know by the the 30th video that you kind of follow down that rabbit hole you'll be learning how to make suicide vests right so the algorithms are designed yes. to get you down the rabbit hole of more and more extreme, mm-hmm. and the same happens with facebook with Twitter you know the, the algorithms are such that you know, you get your, you start creating your own echo chamber a like minded yes. people will group, and therefore you ultimately yes. you know if you, depending mm-hmm. uh, and you know we spoke about this offline about conspiracy theories, depending on how far down you go, you go down that rabbit hole there 's absolutely no chance even though you have this powerful tool to to speak and connect to the most diverse voices. Mm-hmm. The the tool itself is designed yes, in such a way to funnels deny- you somewhere else. Yeah, funnels you. So how do you? What do? You, yeah. So so from particularly from a strategic comms perspective, how do? You, what do you see is the role of social media organisations in combating this, challenging this? Can they change? I mean, can we put pressure on them? I mean, what do we do?
1: <laughs> I think we must. Yeah. yeah. I think we must put pressure. I think we must put pressure, and this is not so that we get a more sanitised feed. Or that we're only fed, you know, cat pictures and dog pictures. Mm. But that we 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 don't allow ourselves to be funneled because an algorithm is taking us to where we're going to buy something. Ultimately, mm. that's what algorithms do. They expose you to things so that you purchase. You are, as we all know from watching all the Netflix documentaries, you are the product. <laughs> so if it's you, free, so you're I, the I think product. that's
2: yeah.
1: yes. Yeah. I don't have a magic wand. I actually don't know what the way out of that is because it's clear that things are only sustained through profit generally. Hmm. And that's not a world that development plays in. I wish it did more of that—that that it set set up things for a profit trajectory, so it could hmm. hand over and, and switch. But we don't. That's not how development thinks at the moment, sadly. So I think with social media companies, what I—I I think it's a delicate balancing act between freedom of expression, allowing people to say whatever they want, whenever they want. That must be defended hmm. at all costs, yeah, because that's what people like Taliban, Daesh hate. With a responsibility that people are either exposed to different voices, that there is a way in which that, that echo chamber, that permanent echo chamber could be broken. And I think that's probably about being tricky with algorithms or being mm. innovative with algorithms that, that say we every now and then we're going to switch it up. Mm. But it's also about us as consumers being very mindful. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I read the New York Times, The Age, The Australian and BBC. Mm. Do I read Al Jazeera? Do I switch on at Arrabia? Where else am I consuming content from? And that's Mm. why I'm delighted at the breadth now that we have access Mm. to. But as a consumer, it's not just me. It's a two. We have rights and responsibilities. Mm. Um, And I need to, as a consumer, challenge my own viewing, listening, reading habits as well and take responsibility. And then I think there's a role for governments to step in and really get to the heart of Algorithms, commercial realities, and say what can we do as a regulatory authority to ensure that there's a little bit of break break up here,
2: yeah, um,
1: or yeah. that at least there are systems in place that allow us to say, you know, these are the limits um, mm. around what can be what can be seen, what can be what can be said.
0: Yeah, because I, and and I, I agree hundred percent. I mean, I think whilst I wholeheartedly agree that responsibility lies with the individual and the onus is on us to, you know, open up different browsers and look at different, you know, media outlets and see what they're saying to try and get some diversity of thought uh, to challenge our own confirmation bias uh, because, you know, mm-hmm. that's what will drive mm-hmm. how we – and that's what drives, and we see this all the time. We see this now in, with vaccinations and whatnot. We saw it, We mm-hmm. see it in politics, uh, with, you know, U.S., a prime example, the stolen election and so on. You know, if, yeah. you, if you believe a story yeah. – you will find information that confirms it, but it takes That's That's humility correct. and and yeah. and and courage to step outside of that. Now, but what, yes. one of the things that I find one of the things that I find challenging is that I, I just don't know because you know I'm a strong believer that the environment shapes what we do. If my environment is such that I don't get exposure to other you know other news media. I don't. I don't get exposure to other opinions. The chance of me actually stepping, you know, for hitting some sort of mental bumper to to tell me, hey, actually, mm-hmm. I should look outside of this. I find this to be rather unlikely, unless, mm-hmm. and this is where I think regulation comes into play, particularly with social media. Yes. Unless the guardrails exist that will force a force me or force. The architecture through which I consume information mm-hmm. force me to look at other opinions, right? If the choice is only up to me, I I, I don't have that much faith in 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 human uh, autonomy or or it's uncomfortable. you know yeah 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 yeah. yeah. But also <laughs> yeah. we know that we're not as yeah. autonomous or rational yeah. uh, you know as we'd like That's to true. be, I'd like to, yeah. as, as we'd like to think we are, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's why I think it has to be that holy trinity between individual as consumer, government as regulatory authority and social media businesses as as commercial realities. How does that triangle work and how do we interact in a healthy way? And I I wouldn't use the word force. I would use the word opportunity. You know, what Mm. opportunity can regulatory authorities provide to deepen exposure to? And again, for me, it comes back to my own sense check that I always do for myself is who told that story? Was that an Afghan woman on the streets of Kabul or Jalalabad or Kandahar telling that story? Was that a white Western face that I saw? Yeah. Where does that authenticity Mm. come from? Now, of course, there are problems. Maybe Afghan women are not able to tell the story in that place at that time. Then we should be working to change that. Mm. But my own sense check is who told that? Story and so one of the things that I'm that I'm proud about is uh, over the last few years that the UN is helping to support um, a team of African journalists uh, called Dirage to tell their own stories uh, of what disaster risk reduction and resilience building looks like in in different countries in Africa. And I think they're the kind of initiatives that we should do more of, not coming in with our set pieces or the narratives that we have as as um, as donors as agencies, but. Uh, Going back to who tells the story and, and how do mm. we, how do we enable how do we enable that they're the stories I want to listen to um, because they're the stories that that understand the nuances and and know how to know how to do something about it that's lasting and sustainable when we've all packed up and gone home
0: yeah and I think it undermines that I mean I think we we're, we're all growing accustomed to and i mean that is the, the the consequence of you know the last thirty years, particularly in the West you know we've lost faith in our leaders. Uh, in the institutions, in the system, you know whether that be Brexit, whether that be Trump, you know these are all consequences of mm-hmm. significant portions of the population being left behind, which is what you were talking about before. You know the your forty five degree angle uh, gap between the the dream that was sold, uh, you know, at the polling booth, yes. between reality, uh, you know, and 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 I think by actually slowing down and and realizing, hold on, people aren't. People aren't stupid. Mm. People are starting mm-hmm. to be like, you know, this is where, mm-hmm. we, you know, this is the drain the swamp idea, right? I mean, and, and yes. you can almost understand yes. that because we've been quote-unquote fed lies, although there might have been well-intentioned yep. at the time, uh, you know, they've, they've proven to not have eventuated. Now the same yes. happens, you know, when we go overseas and when we try to sell a conflict-affected uh, uh, mm-hmm. state, nation, well, here's your dream of democracy, uh, and yes, you know, yes. and, and and here's the here's how we're going to solve it. But here's
1: your constitution written in English by an expert in Washington.
0: It, exactly. Well, like well, exactly like Bosnia, right? The Dayton Peace Accords. Yeah. <laughs> you know, annex 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 D is the constitution written in English. Yes. Right. Yes. It's a, which is uh, sure good for a you know let's stop the killing, but come on, mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a, you know it it, yes. it, it again removes. The actual local context, uh, from you know, from any,
1: and it removes the responsibility too, doesn't yeah. it? That's the dangerous thing, I think, because I think it's then very easy uh, for for then the people who are who are on the ground, the the the, the national leaders. Well, we mm. didn't we didn't write that, and that's true. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually a very very dangerous activity to engage in. Or you'll find that when it's translated, that some things change. Yeah.
2: Mm,
1: mm, mm. Um, because actually, that first English constitution didn't fit the cultural sensitivities or the cultural context at the time, um, and so in the translation, certain things slipped. I've seen that happen yeah. as well. And I think so. These are things that we can we insist on doing time and time again, um, and that are not they're not rocket science.
0: Mm. <laughs> it, what what do you think be- is the fundamental? Mistake underpinning this. Have you been able to to zero in on one, two, three key things that you have realised? We just keep doing the same mistake again. There's some kind of fundamental principles.
1: That's a massive, massive question. Again, going back to my own experience, because this is not something that I study or or you know have spent. Yeah, years refining through research. It's what I've seen on the ground. It comes back to what we've talked about throughout the entire conversation. It's that moment of pressing pause and opening one's eyes to the situation in which you're in, not the situation you were in 10 years ago, five years ago in a different country. Someone once said to me, don't come to Cairo if you don't love the dust. Mm. And for me, that's it's pressing pause It's opening eyes with actually a deep concern and consideration and love for the very tricky people and the very tricky situation in which you're now and having the humility to come into a meeting and say, we're here to ask what you think you need and you know what we're going to do? We're going to commit for the next three years to doing what you think you need. And sometimes it's going to sound like it's going to be crazy.
2: Yeah.
1: But actually, we're going to listen to you. I saw that once. Again, in Afghanistan, sitting down with the Minister of Finance to go through uh, the budget for law and justice. The stationary budget was something like $20 million, and we couldn't understand why the stationary budget was so high. And as we went through line by line, we saw that it included like 100 um, RPG launches. Why do you need grenade launchers in the law and justice stationary budget? We said, well, we need them to defend the courthouses against the Taliban. Now, that would have been a very easy thing for someone to say, oh, <laughs> you know, that's delete not that your line. That, Yeah. Delete yeah. that line. Or, as as it turned out, a very wise person said, okay, this you've said this is a fundamental need. This is what gives your lawyers the confidence to come to court, to prosecute, to listen, to, you know, defend. If that's the kind of security you need to enable law and justice to work in this country, we're going to deliver it. Yeah, good on the US government at that, at that juncture. And it's that ability to say it sounds crazy, it seems crazy, you know what, we're going to give it give it a go. I hear so many stories about we can't do that because they're corrupt. No, no. What that means is actually we haven't set up proper systems and processes that protect things from being corrupt. And that is very easy to do hmm. nowadays, yeah. yeah to set up online and digital systems that track everything. There is no excuse to say we can't do that because there's a risk of corruption. There should be very little risk of corruption. Of course where there are people there will always be dodgy yeah. people, but that's our laziness getting into
2: the
1: getting into the picture. The president of Somalia always said And he was often ridiculed for this, and I could never understand why. It's like a plumber coming to fix a a pipe in your house to stop it leaking. You've got to, at some stage, turn the tap on to see if it was fixed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and donors seem to be very, very reluctant to turn the tap on. Either they don't have confidence in their own systems processes, or they're afraid of letting go and ceding control. And I think it's a juggling act between the two. There are very great things that have happened with development. You know, we've seen rates of poverty across the world go down. We've seen more girls in school. We've seen maternal health flourish. We're seeing Mm. many incredible things happen. But fundamentally, we don't take the time to listen, to learn and to love the people in the situation we're going into to give us the humility to say we may not have all the answers.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think, again, it's... it speaks so much to me, and, and it again is just another piece of the puzzle in my mind against in, in this dichotomy between interests and values. Um, I can't, I can't not ask you, given your intimate involvement in Afghanistan, mm. about the current situation. What's your, what's your thoughts?
1: Aye, aye, aye. Um, it's very difficult to speak without a great deal of of emotion, so mm. um, uh, which I won't apologize for. Um, I left it, Afghanistan when I was six months pregnant because my medical insurance refused to pay for me to be there any longer. Um, it's a very, very special place for me because of the people I know and the the people I've met and the stories that I've that I've heard. I am deeply disturbed by both the absence of leadership from the Afghan government um, and the way in which the withdrawal was handled and the gross arrogance and protectiveness and nationalism that I see on display from many countries around the world who could easily open doors to let people who've served us, who need another opportunity to continue their lives and their families' lives, I I cannot understand this reluctance to help and serve. We are all, at one stage in our lives, migrants and nomads, all of us. And we need to give the people who need a second chance the honour and respect that that they deserve. I'm deeply ashamed at the actions of the UN. I know that many of the UN leadership in country positions fled and left the country and left national staff there and then issued Irresponsible messages, you know, about what they should do if the Taliban comes looking for them, which is happening. Mm. We know that. Mm. And I think for the UN to have any shred of credibility, it must look after its national staff. It must now decide where are the limits for its engagement with the Taliban. Are they humanitarian limits? Are they in the development field? And I would hope that the Secretary General uses his influence as he can and could and should. To make sure that countries around the world open their doors to accept people who who can't have a decent standard or, or opportunity to to stay alive in Afghanistan, um, mm-hmm. to find somewhere else.
0: I think that's. That, that, I mean, that's the point to stay alive, right? We're not talking about economic well-being. <laughs> We're no. talking about keeping their head on their freaking shoulders. I mean, this yeah. is. Yeah, I have
1: friends who've sent their daughters away, hiding in different places, because they will get taken by the Taliban. I, mm. I mean, I'm the mother of a nine-year-old. Mm. For me, that it rips my heart apart. Or mm. for colleagues of mine who cannot, you know, have money to give to buy food for their families. And mm. we're saying it's difficult to look after those people. Mm. No. Mm. And then again, as an individual, what am I doing? Yeah, it comes, I can't just point the finger, you know, that's that great Arabic saying you point one finger at someone else and three fingers point back towards mm. yourself. Mm. What am I doing? I have to question myself every day. Am I doing enough to use my voice, to ask politicians to do the right thing, um, to use the privilege I have of where I am and the money I earn to make, to make a difference on the ground? We have to ask ourselves, what are we doing about this? We can't be outraged and not mm. not active.
0: And conscious of the time, I want to uh, bring us to where we started. You said that violence is never the answer. War doesn't get mm. any solutions. What is a solution here? How do we solve this problem, right? As in, and I'm talking about, you know, for example, the Taliban. You know, and we're seeing dozens of videos now of just the gross abuses of human rights that are just rife, mm-hmm. not just in Kabul, but you know, even worse in other uh, districts and, and, and regions of Afghanistan. I mean, what, like, what, what do we do? How do you, how do you? What's the what's the communications plan there? You know what I mean. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be cynical, nor am I. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what the yeah. answer is. I really don't. I, I'm. I think I'm as close to a pacifist as somebody wearing a uniform can be. Um, yes. But I, 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 I'm a little bit of a loss of, uh, you know, ideas.
1: I don't know either. I don't know either. All I can think, and I don't think anybody does mm. at all. Mm. Um, I think. What, I, what gives me some measure of joy is that things have changed so irrevocably in Afghanistan with people having access to mm. social media. I have no doubt that that fuels and empowers the women on their marches in Kabul mm. um, it, it, because it makes them visible. And when things are visible, they cannot be ignored. Well, we've seen other places where things are visible and ignored. Mm. I, I, I hope mm. we've learned lessons from the Balkans, from Rwanda, from many, many many places. I What gives me joy is that the Taliban must be very, very scared that they are now having to govern a people who have their own way of expressing what they want and getting it. And I hope that strikes fear into their hearts. And I hope that the people of Afghanistan continue to use the means that they have um, as they feel safe to do so, to protest. And we should be doing everything we can to, to protect and give access to those rights of protest. Mm. Beyond that, from a communications angle,
2: hmm.
1: I don't have any other. I don't have any other million-dollar answers yeah. apart from the fact that I'm given joy by the fact that technology will enable people to say and what they want to say to be heard and to be made visible.
0: Yeah, yeah. I recently interviewed um, Sahar, a young Afghan um, who now studies. She studies in in King's College in London. She was a filmmaker mm-hmm. uh, initially, but now she's a vocal uh, activist uh, and with strong links to Kabul, uh, uh, quite a quite a powerful, impactful story. Uh, and she is somewhat hopeful that that same message you have just made about social media, about the world seeing what's happening on the ground through the technology that's available. But I think she also made a really, maybe a really sad point that the louder Afghans scream, the more deaf the world grows, which to me is I really hope that's not the case. Uh, but I also somehow get the sense that, you know, there's a lot of truth in what she says. And it's almost like ah, you know, it's just too big a problem. Twenty four hour news cycle, let's yeah. start talking about something else. Which which saddens. Compassion me. fatigue. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it really. Did. I, you know,
1: I I have more hope than that because yeah. once when I first started this kind of international career, a friend, um, shout out to Julian Simon Good in Canberra, um, gave me a little card that I still have in my wallet. It must be probably almost twenty years old now, and it's the story of someone walking along the beach and picking up a starfish and throwing it back into the ocean. Yeah, and the person, a very cynical person, walking along, saying, "There are thousands of starfish mm. on the beach. What do you, you know?" And he said, "No, but I made a difference to this starfish." It may sound a little naive. It may sound a little blah, blah, hippieish, but it's true. Actually, what yeah. we need is the courage and conviction and conscience of a mm. few individuals. That's the power of communications, yeah. to the, harness the power of individuals to change things for other people. Mm. So the world may ignore, but I have full confidence that there will be people like you, like the people you work with, like the people we've seen, you know, come to the fore over the past couple of weeks, who will not give up, who will do the right thing. And they're the people we need to embrace, support, and and give airtime to so that they can continue doing their bit to change to change things. The world can ignore it, but there will be one or two good people. And mm. I'm sure someone famous made a good comment about that one day, which I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I believe that. And and that's and yeah. Yeah. Without that I would lose confidence.
0: I think that is a perfect note to end this on. It's an optimistic note. That I think is uh, is appropriate, uh, Steph. It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm in awe of everything you've done and what you do. I think you you have energy that uh, I've rarely seen surpassed, and uh, I, I congratulate you on that. And I really look forward to uh, seeing what you get up to next. Uh, I know that you're coming back to Australia, uh, so uh, yes, very much. Uh, Looking forward to having you back home and uh, seeing what you get up to next. But uh, between now and then, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed this.
1: Me too. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.